0: If you want to skip the extended intro that I'm going to give, which is an allegory from the chapter that we're going to cover today, which is called a predictive hierarchy, jump to about nine minutes into today's show. And then I'll pick up what Mark Soames then because it's me narrating a little bit of this chapter in order to give you context for today's episode. But if you don't want to listen to me for those full nine minutes, skip ahead to about just after nine minutes. Let's get stuck into another episode in this magnificent series with Mark Soames. Let's get started. I'm going to overlay that passage, as you can see, with some beautiful imagery generated by AI. For those of you don't know, I do that every week with the Thursday thought, which is my own writing about five to 10 minutes every week, and overlay it with this beautiful imagery generated by AI. And in this one, I asked the AI to generate imagery of an aqueduct within a human mind. And I put in the word Eve, and many other generated imagery came up. And it's absolutely beautiful, but it accompanies me as I speak here. So you don't have to look at me struggling through reading an excerpt from the book. So let's get started. A structural engineer, Eve Perry Aqueduct is employed to prevent and repair leaks in a municipal dam. She doesn't know that the deeper purpose of her job is to ensure reliable water and power for a nearby village, and to keep it from being swept away by floods. But she does need to know her sole task is to minimize leakage in the dam. She might also remember from her university studies that she is minimizing the entropy of the dam. But she doesn't need to remember that her job is very practical. Her employees, supply her with the equipment she needs together with a small team of workers. She also inherits a set of instructions drawn up by her predecessors outlining the weakest points in the dam, telling her what to do and when she and her team diligently maintain and repair the dam proactively focusing on its weak points, while they also plug any spontaneous leaks as they appear. Gradually, over time, she learns that some of the unexpected leaks too follow regular patterns. She therefore updates the instructions handed down to her becoming more adept at predicting and therefore preventing leaks. This saves on costs. It dawns on the enterprising Eve that the long term leakage patterns she has recorded correlate with climatic conditions. Her records have unwittingly modeled the local climate i.e. her records and the weather carry mutual information. Without trying to, she has generated a model of an aspect of the world beyond the dam. There are patterns in the weather, and they correspond to patterns in the leaks. Building on this insight, Eve hires an additional staff to establish a meteorology department, which she calls her weather sensing department. This yields a new tier in the hierarchy of her team, located at a different site justified by the expectation that having better weather forecasts will save on repair costs in the long run. The new tier makes her predictive model more sensitive to expected contexts. The weather sensing staff do not need to know that their job has anything to do with preventing leaks. They focus solely upon the task of predicting changes in the weather. Eve supplies them with a chart of expected conditions derived from the inherited instructions she began with, as updated by her. Note that these instructions are not about expected leakage patterns, but rather about expected climatic conditions. Because Eve doesn't want to waste a lot of time checking messages, the new department is asked to send her feedback reports only if deviations from the expected conditions occur. She calls these error reports and uses them to further update her chart of expected climatic conditions, which she in turn sends back to the weather station in the knowledge that this will reduce their workload and ultimately her own. All of this enables the meteorology department to focus efficiently upon the task she has given them to fulfill their duties. The department installs a series of weather sampling instruments at various locations some located at great distances from the dam these barometers thermometers and precipitation meters and the like are calibrated by the team in such a way that they only send signals to the weather station when the parameters they sample air pressure temperature humidity etc deviate from expected bounds these bounds are set in accordance with the predicted climatic conditions This again saves costs as the workers who are hired to read the meters, creating a further tier in the hierarchy, only need to visit those instruments that transmit error signals to the weather station. By keeping careful records of these signals, the station is enabled to adjust periodically and expected bounds for each instrument, thereby further automatizing their procedures, i.e., reducing the frequency of the signals which require them to send out meter readers and adjusters. Some of the resultant algorithms become rather subtle, as the team learns that fluctuations in the parameters they measure are not necessarily fixed and regular, they are on a contextual basis. For example, if air pressure is down, increase expected precipitation, but only in winter. Even so, the meter readers and adjusters do not need to know anything about the greater task of the meteorology department. Their sole job is to read meters and adjust instruments in accordance with the updated instructions they receive from the meteorology office. Even less relevant to their job is the fact that the meteorology department's reports concerning deviations from expect- expected climatic conditions are sent to eve to enable her to more reliably predict patterns of leaks and thereby undertake more efficient dam maintenance work. Incidentally, the nearby villagers make use of these weather forecasts for their own purposes, which have nothing to do with the dam. This gives them a wrong headed impression of the real purpose of the department. They believe it is there to help them schedule outdoor social activities. Eve Perry Aqueduct notices over time that the pattern of dam leakages correlates not only with climatic conditions, but also with seismic events. She therefore establishes a second dedicated team, which she calls the earthquake sensing department. This seismology department focuses solely on modeling and predictive tectonic shifts and the like, which results in the second department installing calibrating and monitoring and continuously adjusting technical sensory equipment of its own. It also combines complex records, which, as happened with the meteorology department and with Eve herself, enabled the new team to automate aspects of their work and to focus only upon unpredictable short term fluctuations. The villagers make use of these forecasts too, of course, although that was never the point of them. What thus Gradually emerges is a complex predictive hierarchy with multiple departments, each with sublayers of their own, which sample different parameters in the world beyond the dam. Each level in the hierarchy follows only the updated predictive instructions it receives from the level above and reports only deviations from expected states in the parameters below, which are monitored at that level. From Eve's point of view, The composite reports she receives from her sensory departments contextualize each other. She has to decide from time to time which report to prioritize. After all, she has limited resources. She cannot cover all possible events. Eve still maintains the dam on the basis of her long-term schedule, from which she deviates only when it does not fit with the combined forecasts she receives from her sensory departments. These departments in turn only send feedback reports to Eve when the data samples they gather deviate from their own long established predictions. And so it goes on down to the meter readers and adjusters. Incidentally, all this iterative message passing and schedule updating between the tiers of the organization that Eve established follows Bayes rule. It uses current evidence sensory samples in conjunction with background knowledge, prior hypotheses to make and revise its best guesses, posterior hypotheses about the world. As time passes, Eve's work becomes repetitive and boring, and she looks forward to retirement. She finds herself thinking, before I go, I would like to build an entirely new and better dam. So she calls up the municipality and asks, do we happen to have a reproductive department?" So I'm going to pick up there from the extended intro that I've given Mark and welcome back to the show once again for your brilliant time and I've learned so so much and I so wish our audience has joined us for this entire time I know this will be a challenge on time for so many people but for those of you who have joined us I've learned so much I hope you have too welcome back to the show the author of The Hidden Spring Mark Soames.
1: It's a great pleasure, Ed, and I appreciate the interest.
0: I've just given you the narration. Over to you to unpack what that's about, because it really, really made sense to me.
1: The main idea that I was trying to convey uh, in the story about uh, Eve Perry Aqueduct um, is that she's, her job um, is, is about one thing and one thing only, which is maintaining the integrity of the dam not leading to wastage through leakage of its contents. And yet in the process of doing that, in order to do that, she builds up a whole model of the environment within which this dam is situated. So that's not what she's seeking to do. It's in order to be able to do that, that implicitly she has to build up a model of the climactic conditions and of the seismological conditions, and so on. And uh, this just falls out naturally from the task at hand, which is maintaining the dam. So the metaphor, if you will, for that, is that this is what we are all doing. We are trying to minimize our free energy. That is the basic game, odd as it may seem. We don't feel as if that's what we're doing, and we are like the villagers in, in the allegory you know, who think, oh, great, you know, we've got a a, a weather forecasting service and, you know, and uh, isn't it nice? This is uh, in order for us to be able to plan our weekend activities, etc. But all of that, as I've said, uh, is just uh, a byproduct of what the underlying fundamental task is. When I say our fundamental task is to minimize our free energy, let's not put too fine a point on it. It is to stay alive. We are so far removed in our civilized, cultured, human world. We're so far removed from the fact that ultimately we are just a species of animal. Each one of us are creatures which are doing what's necessary in order to stay alive. And uh, in the evolution of our species, all of this stuff that we're experiencing is the byproduct. It's what comes from us having developed ways of doing it so incredibly efficiently. And we uh, live in the world of those villages near Perry, the Eve Perry Aqueduct's dam. We lose sight of, of where it all comes from and what it's all about. I'm not saying that we should all become reductionists and think that uh, all the frills and uh, bells and whistles of our lives don't really matter. They do matter. All those things that Eve Perry Aqueduct developed in order to be able to perform her fundamental task. Um, are valuable things. They enable her to do that task more efficiently. Uh, so it's not as if these are just uh, epiphenomena, as they call them. In other words, it's not as if the rainbow is just there um, and it doesn't actually do anything. And all of these cognitive capacities that we have, all of these intellectual proficiencies that we have, they certainly do do something. Um, and um, I- I'm, I'm not minimizing that. But ultimately, I think from the point of view of each one of us uh, living our lives, the direct point of contact uh, with that underlying task um, that I'm referring to is feelings. That ultimately, at the bottom of everything, and this I think we actually do uh, benefit from noticing it, that at the bottom of everything that we do, Ultimately, uh, we're trying to feel better, you know, and those, uh, the, 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 we're trying to, to put it in technical terms, uh, regulate our affects. In other words, we're trying to not feel bad. Uh, we're trying to, we try, and, and there's a great variety of different ways in which we can feel bad. Um, just as with Eve Perry Aqueduct's uh, setup, although it's one task, uh, there are many different departments that are contributing to that task and uh, the bottom line uh, for all of them uh, comes down to the structural integrity of the dam that in our cases is you know the 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 structural and functional integrity of our bodies uh, and of our of our ongoing existence and our connection with our bodies and with our fundamental biological values um the things that drive the behavior of every living creature um they're they communicated to us in the form of feelings, and uh, as I say, uh, in fact, in a, a much later in the book, in its closing passages. So I mustn't, I mustn't uh, give the punchline away. <laughs> but uh, as I say at the very end, you know, it really is a precious uh, inheritance. Feelings uh, it connects us literally and directly uh, through our entire uh, phylogenetic uh, uh, in, in, inheritance you know, back to the very beginnings of life um, and what worked for our ancestors, and I don't only mean for our human ancestors, uh, I mean for uh, all of our ancestors. Um, all of that is deposited in our current phenotype uh, in the form of feelings. But now to come back to the story about um, Eve Periaqueduct, Aqueduct, as you've asked me to, uh, I've, so I've said what it's all about. It's ultimately about this dam, It's not for predicting the weather. Predicting the weather is for uh, maintaining the dam. But another way of looking at it uh, is this. We live inside of our skulls, (laughs) literally. And uh, the only way that we can communicate with the outside world and that the outside world can communicate with us is via nerve impulses. Uh, it's, it's kind of sobering to be reminded of this undeniable fact that what we are actually receiving in terms of uh, the message passing from the outside world into our brains encased in our, in our craniums is signals coming from nerve impulses. And those come in the form of spike trains, as we call them in neurophysiology. Spike trains basically just boil down to, over time, that's the train, either a neuron fires or it doesn't fire. And so there's a pattern of firing and that can be reduced really directly to ones and zeros. A one means it fired, a zero means it didn't fire. And so that is very, very literally all that we have access to is these ones and zeros um, coming streaming in Uh, Not colors, not lights, not sounds, not textures, um, just ones and zeros. And it's from from that that our brain constructs a picture of the world. And what are those ones and zeros for? Uh, It's receiving information about uh, the consequences of our actions um, to bring you back to the whole idea of predictive processing. Um, We uh, act on the world in order to maintain ourselves within our viable bounds. Uh, And it's that uh, that we feel. Uh, We feel whether we are deviating from our viable bounds uh, or uh, whether we are moving back towards our viable bounds uh, in the form of unpleasant and pleasant feelings, uh, respectively. So all of this data that's coming in, uh, it's, it's, it's telling us Uh, what the sensory consequences of our actions, and then we're comparing those sensory consequences uh, with the sensory consequences that we predicted. And when I say what we predicted, although at the highest levels, as I said, like with the weather station um, in the Allegory of of Eve Perry Aqueduct, the predictions uh, are not about the weather. Uh, likewise, with us, ultimately, the predictions, although they're, they're unpacked over a deep predictive hierarchy and end up being about the most complex of matters, um, ultimately, when I speak of the sensory consequences of our actions, the bottom line is that there's certain sensory consequences that we simply have to achieve. Um, sensory consequences are not only extra receptive, they are also interreceptive. So, uh, for example, let me use both an extraceptive and an interoceptive one. i um, start with the interoceptive because this is the one that is so frequently neglected, especially by cognitive scientists who should know better, um, is that, for example, your core body temperature, it is just something you're sensing, you're measuring. Am I in the right temperature range? Am I in the right blood pressure range? Am I in the right blood sugar range? And so on. Those are the bottom line figures. Uh, Those predictions have to be confirmed. Uh, And all the rest of it uh, is what must I do, uh, starting with very basic biological questions, what must I do in order to maintain my viable bounds? And then ultimately it goes from internal homeostasis to what's called allostasis. In other words, what must I do out there uh, in order to bring myself in here uh, back into my viable bounds. And so all of this predictive work uh, is in order to achieve the sensory signals that we need to over this highly complex um, s- hierarchy of of um, uh, 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 the predictions coming down ultimately to those most basic ones. The, the, the story about Eve periaqueduct uh, is also to set the stage for being able to describe how this whole predictive model works at the higher cortical level, but making sure all along that it is grounded in the foundations of the mind that give my book its title. Uh, you know that 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 hidden spring uh, that that that's at the source of consciousness. I said I was going to give. I just realised I said I was going to give an interreceptive and an extraceptive example. So an extraceptive example. Uh, you know. Might be starting with a very simple one, something like pain. You know, uh, I'm feeling something out there, uh, which means tissue damage. What must I do to avoid it? But over more complex versions of it, it's things like anxiety, uh, fear. You know, um, I'm in danger. What must I do to get out of this dangerous situation? Um, You you might feel uh, something like, I use the story in the book about a burning building, uh, if you're in a smoke-filled room, um, you know, there's there's this very basic uh, air hunger, this suffocation alarm. Uh, and uh, then there's a whole hierarchy from there to what must I do in this building here and now? Where should I go? Um, should I go through that door? Should I go through this one? And uh, so all of these higher cognitive and externally oriented um, plans that we make, um, policies that we follow, uh, they, they all of them ultimately rooted in these most basic of biological value systems.
0: I absolutely love this, Mark. I was saying to you before we came on air, I, this chapter really brought so many things together. And I also benefited from having re listened to the episodes up to this moment, and then read this chapter to bring myself right back into this place. Again, there's a couple of things I just wanted to bring to light for our audience. The first is, A beautiful quote in this chapter by Jacob Howie, who said, "The brain is somewhat desperately but expertly trying to contain the long and short-term effects of environmental causes on the organism in order to preserve its integrity. In doing so, a rich, layered representation of the world implicitly emerges. This is a beautiful and humbling picture of the mind and our place in nature. I absolutely, I love that because it really does." bring you back to the source to actually the source of of not only as you said, our humanity, but the reptilian brain, for example, it brings you right back there. I wanted to, to build on that. And hopefully you'll uh, extrapolate what my meaning here in, in your more in, in a higher version of how I can <laughs> articulate it. I was telling my son, who's 13. And my other son, who's nine, I was telling them about this chapter, and I was trying to tell them in the metaphor of Eve, that if you, for example, think about the brain and how it's evolved over time, we had a very, very limited primitive brain at one stage. So the original the amygdala, so this kind of survival brain, and then I I was telling them that over time, it was like, you know, those drawers everybody has in their house that over time accumulates all kinds of rubbish like blue tack and tum tacks and <laughs> pieces of paper and pieces you don't know what's this off you ask might ask your wife and she's going to throw it into the drawer it over time it accumulates kind of bits of information and knowledge and and it kind of builds itself over time as the environment changes but what i thought was it's the same thing that happens mark with an organization and when you told the story of eve i thought about how an organization starts as a startup adds more and more employees adds more bureaucracy more administration trying to sense changes in the business environment and creates all these structures and protocols and processes and procedures etc and over time some of them are no longer useful because the world has changed so dramatically so i might then the brain might double job and go oh, you know what the same mechanism we created for running away from a, che- a cheetah Or uh, (laughs) some type of animal that we used to run away from is the same mechanism that we have for dealing with workplace stress, and some of those are no longer useful. And understanding this is so so beneficial. Maybe you'll elaborate on this.
1: Well, that's uh, um, the 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 way you explained it to your kids is great. Um, So let me build on that on the on on the imagery that you've uh, just used. so we have these basic phenotypic needs, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm not going to speak only about bodily ones. I'm, I'm rather going to um, include higher ones, uh, that is to say emotional needs, which are no less biological than bodily needs. And in fact, let me just explain that uh, quickly. Uh, you spoke about running away from a cheetah um, that clearly is a biological, uh, a biological necessity. Um, the, the outcome of not running away from a cheetah is being devoured by a cheetah. Um, and uh, so, you know, what could be more biological than that? That it's, it's life-saving. But the, the, the process that we're talking about is governed by a feeling called fear. And fear is an emotion. Uh, separation distress uh, is an emotion, which we mammals and, as it happens, birds, Feel uh, because if we are because we mammals like birds um, cannot look after ourselves uh, when we're born. We have to attach to somebody who feeds us and 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 keeps us going. Uh, we can't do it by ourselves, and so we attach as a life preserving uh, measure. But the feeling uh, of. You know, I, I love my mummy um, is an emotional feeling, and it makes me anxious uh, and sad when when mummy's uh, uh, away and and when I when, when I don't know where she is and when I can't find her and so on. that's what I mean by separation distress. So these emotions rage, and uh, likewise, um, you know, anger is clearly an emotion, but it's also clearly a biological necessity. If you can't defend your corner you're not going to have a corner. Somebody's going to take it and uh, you're not going to get your fair share and eventually you're going to cop it. So, so um, when I speak, I, 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 it's, it's much easier to speak about basic bodily functions like I did a minute ago. I spoke about core body temperature and the, the need to maintain your blood oxygen levels and so on, you know, the, the, in the image of the, of the smoke-filled room. Um, but it's far removed from most people's existence in, in the, um, the modern world that we live in, uh, we don't recognise um, that this is, as I was saying about the aqueduct. We don't recognise that this is actually what the whole game of life is about. The whole game of life is keeping us alive. <laughs> That's what it's about. But it's so far removed from our everyday experience. I think if I speak about emotions, uh, it'll be it'll be easier for for people to relate to rather than bodily affects. I'll speak about things like fear and anger and, and separation, distress, and let us not forget lust, which is another emotion that governs many people's lives, uh, and which is ultimately a pretty biological business um, of great biological importance, uh, you know, the uh, survival and reproductive success uh, are, the, 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 are what drive the engine of, of, of evolution, the, the maintenance of the existence of the species. But now let me come to to, uh, building on the story you told your kids. So we have these needs. Uh, All of our needs are are governed homeostatically. In other words, there is a viable range that we have to stay in and deviations from that range are just bad um, and we have to move back toward that range and that just is good. Um, So this is how how all feelings work. Um, We are and this comes to your you, what you were saying uh, about these deep subcortical structures that we share with other vertebrates, uh, including reptiles. Um, that uh, these um, we are we are fortunately uh, we are not born blank slates. Uh, we are not born into this world, and it's just like there you go, mate. Hope you survive. You know, work it out for yourself. Uh, for, uh, fortunately, and, and this also speaks to what I was saying about this deep phylogenetic inheritance, this, 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 legacy that's handed down to us over eons of biological time. Uh, we are born with innate predictions as to what we must do in order to maintain our viable bounds. So uh, when it comes to bodily uh, needs, we speak of reflexes. Uh, when it comes to emotional needs, we speak more commonly of instincts. Uh, these are instinctual behaviors. So um, let me refer to just two of the emotions that I mentioned uh, a minute ago. When it comes to fear, uh, our viable bounds are I am not in danger to life and limb. That's where you need to be. Uh, when you are in danger, then the fear, feeling of fear kicks in. Um, the other one I mentioned was rage. Uh, the viable bounds when it comes to rage are that. Um, there is nothing standing between me, getting between me and what I need. Nothing preventing me from getting what I need. If something is preventing me, there's some impeding uh, obstacle uh, uh, getting in my way and preventing me from, uh, from from meeting my needs. I feel frustrated, irritated, angry, raged uh, as that as that um, deviation from my viable bounds increases. Um, so. Those are emotional needs. I've told you that they are biological needs, and I've told you why they are, but we all know these feelings, feelings like fear and feelings like like anger. Um, And we are born with predictions, uh, innate predictions, uh, in the form of instinctual behaviours as to how to um, deal with those needs. So when it comes to fear, uh, we are born with the prediction Uh, which we call an instinct, uh, which is I must, we don't think it in words, we just do it. Uh, I must freeze, which basically means hope I don't get seen by that cheetah. Um, And if you are seen, we flee. (whistles) Um, We don't need to learn how to do that. Um, And and, and not only do we not have to learn it, um, you go all the way down um, to mice, um, a, a newborn mouse, Um, It's by newborn, I mean on the first day that it's alive, um, you put one cat hair into its cage, it will freeze. It's never met a cat, um, never discussed cats with its parents and uh, learned about their general attitude to mice, but they will freeze. And that is because those of their ancestors, which just happened uh, to freeze uh, when they smelt cats, uh, those are the ones that survived and reproduced. The ones that went s- sort of a- greeting the cat uh, with, a- with great uh, uh, interest, uh, they're, the w- they're the ones that did not survive uh, and uh, did, therefore did not reproduce. So into the genotype is selected this, this behavioral propensity, uh, and this is this precious inheritance. that. Um, so we just have an innate tendency to freeze or to flee, when it comes to uh, to anger, uh, we have an innate prediction there too, an instinctual response, which is to attack. Um, and you look at any animal; uh, you, you 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 frustrate them enough, uh, eventually, you know, is the response that you get. And uh, you don't need to teach them that. That's just what they do. And look at any any human baby uh, screaming its head off. Uh, you'll see the you'll see the same sort of rage attack. Um, it's a little frightening to, to realize that that's what it is that we're seeing. We're kind of lucky that little babies don't have the motor capacity to act on that rage. But you know what they want to do uh, uh, instinctually. Uh, any uh, any creature uh, uh, faced with these stimuli. Uh, their innate response is, in the case of fear, to freeze or to flee, uh, and in the case of anger, to attack. We call it affective attack to destroy the bastard. You know that's what I got to do. Um, and now to your analogy to uh, to a, to a corporation. So these are survival instincts. You know these are the things that that have to be done uh, uh, in, in, in the trenches in order to survive. It's a jungle out there, etc. And then you know. Gradually, uh, um, you know, as you become a more sophisticated enterprise, you are no longer a gangster in the streets trying to protect his turf, but you are rather a proper business. Um, you know, this is not the way to behave, um, and so the same applies to us. Um, you know, these very primitive, um, crude uh, responses uh, to, uh, uh, to 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 um, uh, homeostatic deviations—that is to say, to moving out of our viable bounds. Um, they are not, uh, not. Not only are they not uh, the only way to respond; they're not the best way to respond. Um, so, what do we do? We have to. We have to inhibit those primitive, instinctual, reflexive responses um, in order to um, tolerate a little bit of uncertainty. And it becomes a question of well, what else might I do? Um, and And also, not only what else might I do in general, it's, you know, what is the best way to behave with this person as opposed to that person and in this situation as opposed to that situation? And this is how the predictive model begins to complexify and deepen. So the primary prediction, which is the instinctual one, never goes away. Um, By the way, please take note of that even in your own life, uh, I don't only mean you Aiden or anybody listening, you know we all still have the instinctual response to freeze uh, and to run away. I mean if you're in a sufficiently uh, frightening situation, you will find that's what you do. And likewise if you're in a sufficiently enraging situation, you'll attack you know um, this is this never goes away that 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 prediction remains. Uh, it's because it's hardwired as they say it's literally baked into us uh, uh, into our genes um but because it is not the most efficient and effective uh, and certainly not the most flexible way of responding uh, so we have a second layer uh, where there might be two responses uh, two responses other than affective attack or other than freezing and fleeing it's like, okay, so, you know, uh, in, in situation A, I do this other thing. And in situation B, I do this other, other thing. Uh, and then there's a, 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 a third layer um, that gives you four responses. And then, a, and then a fourth layer that gives you eight responses. And all of this um, is building up a, a, a behavioral repertoire, which is, to, to, to cut to the essence of it, which is context-sensitive, Uh, so that we don't only have one generalized stereotyped response whenever we move out of our homeostatic bounds. Uh, We have a wide range of possibilities uh, which unfold over a cascade of options, each one uh, inhibiting the layer before, um, as one must, in order to be able to open up these flexible options. Uh, And all of that depends on uh, a reading of the context, and so the predictive hierarchy goes from these obligatory, stereotyped, compulsive responses, which are innate predictions, to ones that we've learned uh, over our lifetimes uh, through a hierarchy uh, which has the following characteristics. Uh, the first is that the deeper responses in the hierarchy are the more automatic um, they and they become automatized over a lifetime so although it was a flexible option you know, other than just attacking um what if the person who's frustrating you is your mummy you can't attack her uh, because you you need her if the person who's frustrating you uh, is your daddy uh, you can't attack him because he's bigger than you you know and uh, you know and so and so it goes on but these these um uh, other ways of responding um if they prove their worth reliably, then they become automatized so you try out different things by trial and error and i'll I'll come to something more than trial and error in a minute uh, but let me start with you try out other options and you see what works and then you discard those that don't work and those that do work um, we, we we say that they become consolidated uh, which basically uh, means uh, they become more and more automatized um and so we have we have layers uh, over the predictive hierarchy uh, of of w- what must I do in order to meet this need which are progressively less automatized and with that comes the very interesting um, additional feature that the less automatized they are the more conscious they are and there we come back to the main topic of my book um and uh, so I must unpack why that Uh, must be the case. But before I do, I want to just pick up what I said I would do about trial and error. Um, Trial and error is dangerous because of the error part. (laughs) Errors can be quite bad for you uh, biologically. And so we have this other wonderful capacity, which is thinking. Uh, Thinking is not really acting, It's, it's experimental action in the virtual reality of your mind so you have an imagined uh, if i were to do this if i you don't actually have to do it uh, and then you get the the imagined scenarios have their uh, you, your brain calculates the outcomes um, and uh, you choose uh, in advance uh, in other words with before actually executing the action uh, you 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 tr- you try out as, as several possibilities in the virtual reality of thought and then you select one of those actions so I've told you that the ones that work become progressively consolidated, that is to say progressively automatized, um, and uh, the ones that have not yet um, uh, proven their worth, not yet proven themselves to be reliable uh, uh, options, uh, those are the more uncertain ones, and that is what relates to consciousness. You don't need to be conscious of a response in which you have high confidence uh, because you have learned time and time and time again, this always works. Uh, and so that uh, option um, doesn't need, to, you don't need to feel your way through um, the, 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 um, the, the situation, because you've done that so many times uh, that, you know, this always brings me back to my viable bounds. And so this thing doesn't need this uncertain business of feeling. Uh, feeling is, remember, and this is absolutely the heart of the point made in my book. Feeling is the foundations of all consciousness. So uh, feeling your way through it is r- literally trial and error. Is this making things worse or is this making things better? Uh, that's feeling tells you if it's making things worse or making things better. In other words, I'm getting more into danger or less into danger. Or I'm, uh, I'm, I'm getting rid of this frustrating obstacle uh, or, or, or more or less. Uh, this thing, this, this. Think of when you were a kid and you were fighting. You know, eventually, when you're winning and when you're not, this, 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 this strategy works with this guy. Uh, this one doesn't. And so, you know, so, so you feel your way through the thing, but then you acquire skills which just become habitual and automatic, and you don't need to feel your way through them anymore. Uncertainty, uh, just as I said earlier about error, uncertainty is also a dangerous thing biologically. Uh, Uncertainty entails delay. Um, uh, It entails uh, having to try something out and you don't know what the outcome is going to be. So there's great pressure to automatize. um, And automatization means less consciousness because it means more confidence, less uncertainty, less need for consciousness. Uh, The more uncertain strategies, the ones uh, that um, you have not yet uh, automatized, uh, are the ones that you have to be conscious of um and uh that is to say you have to feel your way through um your enacting of them uh and 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 it, technically speaking I, and I, I, i'm sure you don't want me to get too technical about it but technically speaking what the brain is doing because remember what i said at the beginning it's just it's just ones and zeros um so it's just you know prediction uh, predictions and prediction errors uh, which are which are really reducible literally you know to to binary numbers the one and the zero is a yes and a no you know that's that's basically what it, these are answers to the questions that we're posing uh, to the world uh, but remember it's over a really rich cascade and um, so so the the um, the the acquiring uh, the, the 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 uncertainty uh, which is felt. Um, at the deepest levels, uh, it gradually over these over this predictive hierarchy uh, becomes more a matter of what we call cognition uh, in, in other words, and cognition is derived from perception these are the per, these are the peripheries these are not these deep uh, brainstem matters anymore now we 're up at the level of the cortex which is representing in its own deep hierarchy uh, it 's representing the world in terms of what I like to call mental solids. Um, these are, these are our inferences about what's causing these ones and zeros, a model that we've built of what's going on out there. Do you remember again, Eve Perry Aqueduct, you know, so there's this complex model of what's going on in the outside world, ultimately just to keep the dam, uh, as it were, alive, um, to keep it, to keep it viable in, 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 uh, hydrological terms. Um, the same, the same with, with our, with our brains. Uh, but we end up now with this complex model representing what's going on in the outside world and the common currency um, of consciousness, uh, starting with the business of feeling, which, as I said earlier, you know, ha- has to do with uncertainties about uh, is this working or not. The common currency is uh, extending that uncertainty onto our representations of the outside world. Uh, and I know this sounds uh, quite abstruse, Uh, And so I'm going to try to unpack it, although I'm keeping an eye on the clock. I see I always uh, – you give me so so many hours to speak, and I I, I certainly um, seem to need them. (laughs) Um, But uh, the apparently abstruse point that I'm going to make is the common currency of consciousness is uncertainty. And what you're doing is palpating your confidence levels at the higher levels of the hierarchy, not the deep levels, but the periphery, you know, the perceptual periphery, uh, you you are palpating. um, I I expected this would lead to this outcome. It's led to that outcome. Uh, So how confident am I that is this just noise um, or is this really an increasing evidence that this prediction ain't working Um, to the extent that, uh the signal, uh, it, it looks like it's not noise. This is an error signal. Uh, to that extent, your confidence in your prediction decreases and your, and your confidence in the error signal increases. Confidence is a statistical term. Um, I, it's, it's, uh, it's wonderful that we experience it. Uh, this is the connection between the deep mechanics of the mind and the actual, the actual, uh, uh experiential surface of it. Uh, but, Confidence here means both the feeling um, and uh, the statistical uh, level of confidence in uh, in the signal. We call it precision weighting, uh, which is a which is even f- further removed from from experience. And so it's better to to call it confidence. And so what we're doing all the time uh, is palpating our confidence uh, in our policies uh, in relation to. Um, the consequences of those, the predicted, uh, the difference between the predicted uh, consequences and the actual sensed consequences. That's the that's the error signal um, in which we're palpating um, our our confidence. So that's the underlying mechanics of it all, and uh, this is why the perceptual world becomes conscious. But you must remember when you get to the absolute um, outer outer reaches of the of the of the uh, of the uh, hierarchy, uh, we're we we're also talking and this is the other dimension that I need to spell out. We're also talking about progressively smaller uh, temporal and spatial um, uh, units. So the deepest predictions always apply. they apply uh, in every spatial context uh, and in every temporal context. So your core body temperature always has to be between 36.5 and 37.5 degrees Celsius, uh, whether you are um, five years old or 55 years old, um, and whether you are in Las Vegas or in Melbourne, uh, the same thing applies. You know, that's where you have to be. Uh, and this, this uh, deeply generalizable, spatially and temporally deeply generalizable prediction uh, there's slowly, that the, the, we're speaking about smaller units of space and time. So to take it to the extreme, uh, at the level of your retina, which is really the absolute periphery of your predictive uh, uh, um, model uh, of the world, you've got tiny little receptive fields for each neuron. It's busy predicting, I predict that, you know, that line's going to move this way and not that way, uh, in this tiny little pixel of space. Uh, and so think about how, Uh, absolutely ephemeral these predictions are, you know, they're they're, they're changing second by second by second uh, that barely deserve the word prediction because uh, to use uh, a a felicitous phrase that I think uh, Jakob Howie who you mentioned earlier uh, coined uh, predicting the present, you know doesn't really deserve the word prediction Um, it is just the the present moment but it is actually always a prediction and so we are experiencing um, we are always experiencing uh, the difference between uh, the 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 future that has just happened and the future that we had expected uh, would happen. And uh, so, sensory processing that is conscious, uh, and it's no accident that the peripheral our representation of the of the periphery, the sensory motor periphery, is where all the consciousness is. It's because that's where all the uncertainty is. Um, but what we are what we lose sight of. Uh, but which uh, is is profoundly the case is that behind that there are v- various implicit possibilities that we've that we've um uh, 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 traversed to get to these uncertainties we've we've, we've gone over um many uh, a layer of things about which we are absolutely confident and don't need to question um and it works in the other direction also that As we we learn new things about the world, error signals, um, and perhaps I should say this too because it is so astonishing and so far removed from our commonsensical way of thinking about these things, Um, we do not process inwards everything that we perceive about the world. Uh, That would be an extremely wasteful way um, of, uh, you know, if you have to keep on processing uh, sort of like re- um, discovering the world every moment, uh, and not not being able to take for granted all the things that you already know about the world and don't need to rediscover. So we don't need to, from the bottom up, build up, a, build up, and build up, and build up a picture of the world all the time. We only need to uh, to to transmit inwards those aspects of the world which do not fit with what we expected. So, in other words, we only need to transmit inwards the error signals. So we project outwards, and this I really need to emphasize, we project a predicted world. Um, That's how perception works. We project a predicted world, um, and then the difference between what we sense and what we predicted is what gets transmitted inwards. Um, And to the extent that this error is reliably predicted inwards, in other words, the greater confidence we have in that error, the more it is used to update the predictive model and so uh, error signals drive changing your mind Um, and the the, we have deep beliefs that we strongly resist changing our minds about and we have you know easy come easy go beliefs that we're quite happy to change our minds about and all of this um, is all of this is is reducible to uh, this picture um of of, uh, of of a predictive model I just need to add one thing, and I'll give you a moment to get a word in edgeways, uh, which is that uh, what I'm saying is not some philosophy. You know, if you look um, at the, for example, the visual pathways, um, the the ratio of neurons, of axons that go out uh, to meet the incoming visual signal coming from the retina to the lateral geniculate body, the ratio is 10 to 1 in the favor of the outgoing neurons. So, for every one that goes inwards, ten go outwards. In other words, there's there's ten predictions for for every one error, uh, uh, you know. And so, our commonsensical way of uh, of how we think perception works that we're that that it's all flowing in from the outside, and the consciousness is flowing in from the outside, and nothing could be further from the truth. In fact. Our picture of the world is constructed from the inside and projected onto the outside world, and the consciousness comes from the feelings, um, first in the form, as I say, of uncertainty about the the, the literal the homeostatic viable bound, and then uh, 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 increasingly percolating through cognitive and perceptual layers, um, uncertainty about what I'm doing now. The relationship between the two, let me end with this, just works like like in the following way um if things are turning out as expected that's good if uncertainty prevails that's bad so the feelings the good and bad feelings uh, are about um, the whether things are turning out as expected uh, or uh, uh, uncertainty is prevailing and it's 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 progressively less affective as it becomes about a smaller and smaller little pixel of reality um, in the here and now as opposed to things about which we have eternal confidence,
0: man, what a beautiful beautiful I, I was, uh, I was trying to hold and working I was really testing my working memory of <laughs> the amount of points I was like on oh, come back to him about that come back to him about that. I'm going to do my best because I know your time's limited as always. One of the things that came to mind was the idea of confidence. And if you if you go back to the original allegory or even metaphor of of eve peria aqueduct and the whole idea of building an organization is that okay an organization does work like this i have processes and procedures the more i automate the more predictable processes procedures clients etc etc the better the more i can then reuse energy to focus on the future and actually go okay now i need to update my, my mental model, and thus my business models, in order to deal with a changing business environment. That's exactly how the brain works. And I think that's really useful to give us empathy. Because the other thing is where confidence comes assumptions. And as the business world changes, as it is today, and will always change, and will get faster and faster, we must have this flexibility to be able to update our assumptions and not hold them as true all the time, we need to reevaluate those on a on a permanent basis. That was one thing. So I'm going to throw that over there and and kind of go, I just want to make that connection and and, and ensure that we've made that connection, because the empathy piece is something I really get from the book. The other was a quote that came to mind. And from an an unlikely source, which is Jim Carrey, the guy who's in the movies like Dumb and Dumber and uh, cable guy, all these kind of movies. But he said this beautiful quote, Mark, I'm not sure if you heard it, but it's beautiful. He says, our eyes are not viewers. They're also projectors that are running a second story over the picture that we see in front of us all the time. And he says, fear is writing that script and work. The working title is I'll never be enough. And that came to mind when you talked about fear in particular. And then the last piece to link it to, and you did a brilliant job of this. You, You won't know this, but you linked to an earlier episode where I teed up the whole idea of mice or rats becoming fearful of the cat hair, because they've, that's actually been pro- programmed into them epigenetically over time. So this is passed down from generation to generation. But this also brought to mind a brilliant study by Brian Diaz and Kerry Ressler, who actually did this study where they wanted to Forced this fear. So they they actually programmed fear into mice because the quick rapid succession of generations where they released the smell of cherry blossom into their cages, gave them a little shock and actually programmed the fear of cherry blossom into them over time. And it went down over three generations because when they measured the third generation who had never experienced a shock, they had been programmed to fear it. And I wanted to, to mention that Because this is where I'm linking it all together. I mentioned that at the very start of today's show, you can hack these fear signals. You can hack signals if you know about this. And this is one of the great gifts your book gave me, Mark, is that, for example, I practice cold showers or even heat therapy. So, sauna, I do training. Even if I do stuff like heavy weightlifting, it signals to my bones that my bones need need more density. So it actually helps me later on in life when I'm older, but it also helps neurogenesis. So this has been true proven through work of people like Peter Attia, who showed that actually training can actually help with the brain because the brain needs to be fitter. And that's actually hacking, understanding that, yes, that there's pre programmed, uh, we're not tabula rasa from the very, very, very inner brain but also the the nervous system can send signals back into the brain and actually rewire the brain from outside in. And I thought maybe we'd share that because that is just such a valuable, valuable gift that your book helped me connect.
1: Thanks very much. Uh, so uh, I endorse everything that you've just said. Uh, and, um, you know, it shouldn't surprise us in the end, uh, that as we learn better how the brain works, it has direct applicability to how we live our lives um, and uh, and, and how we run uh, organizations, you know, because ultimately it is all about the same thing. It's about how do you keep a self-organizing system existing as a system? Uh, And if you learn the the deepest rules uh, which have evolved over literally the uh, the whole of biological life, uh, why would those rules not apply uh, at all of these much more complex levels? They do. And uh, this, is, this is, it's, it's not just uh, science for science sake. It is so that we can, um, we want to understand the world so that we can change the world um, for the better. So what I want to pick up on one point that you made uh, in your drawing these links right now, Aidan. Um, and, uh, well, in fact, maybe it's two. So Jim Carrey's statement about that there's this second, uh, there's this projected uh, uh, script um, and he said, and, and it's written uh, in the language of fear, um, which speaks the language of fear. I, I, I want to supplement that by saying, yes, one of them is written in the language of fear. Uh, we have multiple emotional needs and each one of those scripts is running uh, all the time. You know, how uh, there's, there's, so I, I just spoke about fear and rage. I don't want to reduce it just to those two, but to keep things simple, you know, the, the, there's a rage script running all the time, too. Uh, there's a separation the script, there's a sexual script, uh, the, 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 there's a play script, thank God for that, um, and uh, a caring one, nurturing the one, and, and all of these needs are, are running scripts of their own all the time, um, and all of these needs have to be met. But now to link to what you were saying about organisations, um when you're there's a, between these different emotional needs, there's one of them which is rather special. Um, the technical name for it is seeking, the, the seeking drive, um, and the way that that works um, is that. When you are not dealing with a clear and present task, in other words, you are not running away from a predator, uh, you're not seeking uh, to copulate with somebody, uh, you, you're not um, trying to get rid of that bastard who's preventing you from getting to what you want and so on, when all of these other emotional needs are more or less in kilter, uh, then we we default to seeking. Uh, and the seeking drive, uh, unlike these other task-oriented drives, uh, or emotional needs, which are which are trying to reduce uncertainty. In other words, how, how do I get rid of this past And how do I find safety? How, where, where, where is Mummy? You know, trying to reduce uncertainty because I've, I've got to deal with this task. When those tasks are more or less off the radar, then seeking positively looks for uncertainty. It's it's uh, it proactively engages with uncertainty and the feeling that it produces is interest. The world is interesting. Uh, And so you engage with novelty. Um, Novelty is uncertainty. In other words, I've never encountered this before. This is interesting. How does that work? Um, And this is a proactive engagement with uncertainty so as to reduce future uncertainties. So it's a luxury to be able to engage with future uncertainties when you don't have to deal with present uncertainties. And that's how we think of this seeking drive, which is a kind of exploration of, of hitherto unexplored uh, possibilities and territories. And the same applies to organizations. That's why I'm saying this uh, in this context, uh, is that it's not only a matter of surviving here and now, um, you know, and, and, and uh, in, the, in the current market. It's also, uh, if, you, if you are so fortunate uh, as to have the luxury... Um, to be able to afford the luxury. And I don't mean afford it financially only. I mean, you know, if the company w- or is not in crisis mode all the time, then you have the luxury of being able to plan ahead, and I- imagine f- future scenarios, uh, consider uh, uh, novel possibilities. Um, and uh, I thought that I should, uh, in this um, jungle-filled uh, uh, picture that I've been painting, uh, I thought I, 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 I would... Uh, Conclude on on that r- rather happier note uh, about uh, the, these con- these scripts that we're that we're constantly uh, projecting onto the world uh, in order to reduce our uncertainty about how to survive in that world.
0: Beautiful way to finish and right on time, Mark as well. I don't know if you did that purposefully. You did a great job. And next up, I just want to tell our audience: for those of you who are reading along with us. Mark suggested the next place to go is back to the cortex. So there's a chapter called Back to the Cortex, and that's what we're going to cover next. As always, Mark, author of The Hidden Spring A Journey to the Source of Consciousness. Mark Soames, thank you for joining us.
1: Thanks, Aiden. Great to see you again.